This is episode 71 of No Truce Bard Checkmate. And on today's episode, I have the scholar, author, and entrepreneur, Luana Chambers Lawson on. And in this episode, we discuss impact investing, cryptocurrencies. We also get into the conundrum of political tribalism. And we also talk about the versus battle. This was an entertaining and informative episode. Make sure you check this out. Listen, like, comment, share, and subscribe. Thank you. Take care and peace. Peace. Welcome back to episode 71 of No Truths Barred, the best up-and-coming podcast on the internet. And I'm your host, Hoikaway Simmons. And once again, if you've missed any of the previous 70 episodes, you can find those episodes on Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and I'm putting more of those podcasts on YouTube as well. And also, I want to thank everybody who's contributed any sort of modicum of support for this particular platform, whether it be sharing a piece of content, whether it be providing constructive criticism, whether it be commenting, clicking the like button, all of it is uh, appreciated. So I don't uh, shoo away any sort of, of support. I definitely appreciate it. And also, I want to thank the people, the guests who decided to come on my platform for the previous uh, 70 or 69 or so episodes. So thank you guys as well. So let's jump into episode 71. This is Checkmate, because we win in this game, and you can't win against us. So Checkmate, I'm playing on the chess thing because the guest that I have on today um, is somebody who, when I first told them that I was going to start a platform uh, by myself, was extremely supportive. Uh, they didn't try to talk me out of it. Um, they, they provided support always, and this is their third appearance. Uh, just briefly, this person, this powerful intellectual and leader that I'm having on today is the CEO of, of Tacit Growth Strategies, uh, project management. She's a, a, a scholar, a professor, an author, uh, so many different things. I'm welcoming back Luana Chambers Lawson. How are you doing today, ma'am? What's going on? <laughs> I'm doing great, family. How you doing? I'm great. It's just an honor to have you back for a third time. And, you know, we went from the Queen's Gambit to the Checkmate. And so uh, the reason why I call this Checkmate is because whenever you and I converse, it's never idle conversation. It's always subject matter and content with the objective to inform, educate, and uplift. I think that's what we do whenever we speak, whenever we provide a presentation, whenever, like yourself, you're an author, when you put out a book, um, it's deeper than just money. It's deeper than just uh, ephemeral, vapid social media thing. It's about connecting to people. It's about helping people. It's about uplifting people. And so since last time, you know, uh, real quick, what have you been working on? Oh, wow. We've been so busy since last time. We expanded. We moved to a different location. Remember last time we had, um, I want to say it was that, that portrait with a African drummer in the background yeah, and I remember was, that. Yeah. And now our background is the city of San Antonio. <laughs> awesome. Listen, it's beautiful. So it's, I, love, I love the aesthetic of the skyline. 
You know, like yeah. you, you, it's, it's, it adds to that boss mentality. So I, I love that. It's <laughs> awesome. And you know, as always, let Thank me provide you. kudos to you because you're doing a lot. Uh, you were involved in a very powerful webinar about LinkedIn. And I have my notes and there was just a lot about LinkedIn. I just did not know, I did not understand. And so I found that to be an extremely powerful uh, webinar. So once again, I, I love the activities you're in. I love the projects that you're working on. And also, uh, before we get into the podcast, let people know how they can follow you. And then we'll mention it again in the middle and then again at the end. How they can, how can they follow you on social media? Yeah, so the webinar you're talking about is the Global Entrepreneur Network. And that is actually an offshoot of an export contract that we had earlier this year. And that was the International Business Leaders Network. So once we finished that export contract with the Department of Commerce and UTSA, we went ahead and took those members and gave them the option to come in and keep working with us um, as part of the Global Entrepreneur Network. And so that was the kickoff event. Thank you so much for attending that. It was such a big deal uh, to see you there and to have you participating. I just love seeing you. So that is a membership network where if there are people who are, you know, solopreneurs, people who are working uh, in different environments where they're trying to find ways uh, to work smarter, not harder, uh, try to value engineer a lot of what they've got going on so that they can, you know, stretch that dollar and really retain value. The Global Entrepreneur Network is the place for them to be, right? The membership network, it costs less than $100 a year. And with that, you get all sorts of access to uh, all sorts of brilliant people, brilliant minds like the leader of the Entrepreneur Network, who is Amanda Anochi. She's also our, our project management office uh, PMO director here at Tastic Growth Strategy. So, so definitely want to encourage people to check out our website to get more information on uh, growthistacit.com. On social media, we have two handles. We have Tacit Growth Strategies, as well as the Global Entrepreneur Network. Uh, the Global Entrepreneur Network is our network. It's an ecosystem of businesses, municipalities, uh, healthcare organizations, all sorts of different categories of professionals who are project managers by trade. Uh, or people who are interested in being project management practi uh, uh, practitioners or cert certified project management practitioners, I, I should say. And then you also have, of course, tacit growth strategies where we do all of the impact investment consulting um, and strategy meetings and then working with different municipalities to help them uh, uh, recoup lost uh, lost uh, income and, and um, find a better way, the best way to serve the uh their constituents their taxpayers which is who we all are so that's how you can stay in touch with us awesome uh thank you for providing that and uh once again uh uh pop i want you to promote your book really quick um and we'll at the end of the podcast we'll direct people to um i think you, it's available on you guys website and amazon am i correct that's right and that is the book right there master grant writing or project manager's guide you can get that from our website if you would like a signed copy if you're interested in you know just sort of ordering a copy for your own uh, purposes and you don't necessarily want it to be signed by me then just go ahead and go on Amazon and they'll get it to you in two days <laughs> I mean well, look, why would they want it to be signed by you you know I mean listen you got to know this history in the making so you definitely have to so what I, what I want to do with this particular episode today is I want to take a little bit of a different approach I want to start off 
with a discussion that I think will it'll help and enlighten many of us, where many of us have our own unique character traits. So the quote I want to say is from Henry David Thoreau. And if you're not familiar with his work, definitely read some of his work. Nature by Henry David Thoreau is like one of my favorite pieces of literature ever. So if you get a chance, check it out. But here's the quote. If a man does not keep pace with his companions, perhaps it is because he hears a different drummer. Let him step to the music of that particular drum. When I hear that particular, or read that particular quotation rather, what it makes me think about is this. So many times in life, it's inculcated in us to walk the beaten path because many of our parents and many of our peers, they wanna do everything to avoid failure. They wanna do everything to uh, assimilate into acceptable mainstream society. And what I've been finding out is over the years through authors like Robert Greene, who wrote The 48 Laws of Power, who wrote Mastery, especially in the book Mastery, many of the people that we idolize, <clears throat> pardon me, the people that we idolize, many of the people that we look up to are people who took those unique character traits to people that heard their own inner drum that may have uh, dissented from their peers and their family and their parents, and they were able to follow that. And then what we start to find out in life is that those, those very things that made us weird or nerdy or kind of like a pariah, you know, to our peer groups were the things that later on became our strengths and that people began to admire about us. So for me, I have my own idiosyncrasies that were a little off growing up. You know, I was a person that was just fastidious and seeking and acquiring information. I loved it. And, 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 and to the point I was castigated by peers, you know, you get called a bookworm, you get called nerdy and, and offbeat. But then this became a way for me to express my own authentic self in person-to-person uh, -person conversation, in business, in social media content. It's who I am, it's my organic fingerprint. It's my, my mark that I plan to leave on the world. It's you know, who I'm selling, who I'm giving to you. It's a person that's an, it is a, uh, an agglomeration of all of the things that I thought were weird and odd about myself because I followed my drum, but my drum just so didn't happen to sync up with the drum of everybody else's. So, uh, LaJuana, I want to point this to you. When you hear that quote, what do you think about and what are some unique character traits that you learned to embrace about yourself as you matured and grew and learned more? It reminds me of, uh, and I know we're going to talk about uh, Baba, Dr. Renoka Rashidi later on, but the other person that you and I got to listen to in person that was a huge honor was uh baba dick gregory mm. and i remember in the conversation that he had that night that he spoke about drum in the context of our hearts and so when i think about the uniqueness that we all have and how if we're in tune with that drum that is the thing that leads us to success because that is our authentic self we're following our authentic self we're honoring our authentic self. I think so many times, so often, uh, most of us, like you said, because we're afraid of failure, we become so risk averse that we forget that you are here on this earth at this time to to not only walk into that um, uh, the path that is meant for you, 
but also to do so in your own way. Because when you do that, you lay a foundation for others to follow or to venture off. But either way, they have some sort of reference point, you know, that this person did this before. I don't know if I want to do that or if I want to try something different. But either way, I have something that I can study. And I, and I love that about you. You've always been this consummate scholar, this, this brilliant mind, this uh, philosophical um, thinker. You've always been like that since I've known you. And the beauty about it, though, um, is that because you are that way, you attract other people who are like that. You know, you attract this abundance. And I think people end up going through life um, severely restricted by their own understanding of how they're supposed to live versus just going through the ebb and flow of the journey that we call life, you know? Yeah. Well, since you didn't do it, I'm going to name one of your idiosyncrasies that I saw firsthand and I'm going to put on the spot. So this is what I noticed about you. And I don't know if this has been said to your face. And you may, I don't know how you're going to take this, but I remember being in college uh, at VCU. And I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think when I was in undergrad, you were in grad, right? I believe. No, we were both in undergrad. Okay, well, okay. So this is one of the things I heard. You know, you were the leader of uh, SGA. You did a lot on campus. And when I met you, you know, I was able to really develop an understanding of you as a scholar and, and just, uh, uh, I mean, just a, a, a vast ocean of knowledge and wisdom that you would impart to anybody. And the thing that I noticed about you is that you were really fervent in your ideas and establishing yourself as a leader. Now, because we're in a, a patriarchy of sorts, if you will, I think that may have rubbed people the wrong way because you didn't fit into the square that's supposed to be assigned to you and more specifically as a black woman. What you did is that you stepped out, you took lead and you established yourself as a powerful figure. I mean, everybody from the Dean to Dr. Rao to the other Dr. Rao in the AFM department okay. to, to uh, uh, Doug Wilder, former governor Doug Wilder, all of these people just revered you as a great mind and I think a lot of people your age didn't know how to handle that. And I, mm. I admire your tenacity because despite that, you still marched on and you still stuck to your square and you made sure to not deviate. And a lot of people would conform and would acquiesce wow. because they just want everybody to, to like them and be around them. And you never did that, wow. you never wavered. And so that was one of the things that I noticed is that you moved like Luana, whoever liked it would, would hang around and whoever did not, you know, you could, you could, you know, you could kick rocks. And so that was just being around you. That was one of the things I saw because a lot of people and, oh man, it's, it's sad that this, this mentality is still pondering, but a lot of people could not handle a woman being their intellectual superior. Mm. I'm telling you. Like I'm just people, happy that you started out loud. People didn't like that. 
people yeah i've heard people like i mean like they didn't say it but it was more so that they were intimidated by you yeah and and here's the problem is that you know we're going to get into a lie today but one of the problems what do we always hop on the most when we're talking about our community what do we hop on the most we're like why aren't we producing more minds like this and so when you see that beacon of light right you should be attracted you should be pulled in but what do we begin to do when we see something that is uh, arcane to us we want to tear it down we want to push it away we want to find a chink in the armor instead of valuing that and i'm gonna say this i do acknowledge the fact that i'm a man and maybe my word may be taken a little bit more seriously but here's the other problem with me even i'm a black man and so how do i know all of this stuff? how do i know what i'm talking about and i tell people all the time life is constant learning i'm always growing a lot of stuff that i thought i realized i was wrong about and i have to readjust so that was one of the things that i noticed with you personally is that we have a problem in our society with, with black women who lead and black women who uh, have a preponderance of intellect. We do not yes. like that. You know, we, we do not like that. And, we, and, no. and we, want, you know, we want black women to sit in the corner and be quiet right. and don't say anything. Don't, don't be out, don't be loud and all of this stuff, right? But it's still, when we say these things, what we don't realize is that when you do that, you're becoming a conduit for the same Eurocentrism that we claim to be fighting against and that has been oppressive to us. Uh, and so, you know, without me being too verbose, that's just what I picked up, my sister, uh, <laughs> with being around you. Yeah, I, I'm glad you said it because the thing is, I became that person, that person that was like, F the cool kids, right? And like you said, I'm going to do me whether you're on board or you're not on board, it's, I'm still doing me, you know what I mean? And I'm gonna do me regardless. I think I became that person after we had that really bad car accident when I was a kid. Um, after that, and I you know, basically was an orphan for a little bit, I think that's when I came to realize that if I did not come out here and do it for myself, and if I didn't believe in myself, and if I wasn't confident in who I was and my abilities, then I should have just died in that car accident. I should not still be alive if I'm not gonna come out here and do this the way that I know it needs to be done. You know what I mean? Like, that's what it came down to for me, I think after that very traumatic event and then everything else that happened after that where it's like, hey, you know, you gotta figure that out on your own. Yeah. You got a problem, how are you gonna solve it? <laughs> you know? Yeah after having to be so independent for so long that you know a kid that grows up that fast you can't tell that kid no because that kid's gonna find another way because that's what they've had to do to survive yeah you know yeah. no you can't eat anymore because the kitchen closes at six well i just got out of school and it's six thirty, so i'm not so I'm, I'm supposed to not eat for the rest of the night or drink anything because i just got home no i'm gonna go find a way mm -hmm. you know what i mean that, that's how I had to be that kid. So, you know, you look at, like you said, in university and when I was in high school, I was the same way. You're not going to challenge, um, you know, what it is that I want to get done because at the end of the day, there's people that need me. These people 
are relying on me to get this done. If I yeah. don't do it because of you, then I'm doing a disservice not only to myself, but also to them. And I can't do that. Very true. And one of the things, uh, and we're going to jump into the content, is just, but you know, conversations have a life. This is a, a, yeah. a life form that we have. Words words are powerful. So we're, we're more than this life form that's going to grow up and affect a lot of people that's going to hear this. Uh, but I'd be remiss if I didn't mention this. I don't know if you, you've seen on social media, I've kind of been putting these caveats out against excessive social media use. And I think people may yeah. be in the dark as to why I do that. So in this episode, this is my caveat to excessive social media use. When we talk about knowing yourself and your own person, I've had that, we've been had the benefit of being old enough to, to cultivate ourselves without the influence of social media. A lot of people don't know who they are. A lot of people suffer from low self-esteem. A lot of people suffer from envy of others that they watch on social media because they haven't figured out themselves. They haven't figured out that light that they have in here that they were born to share with the world. And many of us, we go through life and we don't like this person's success or that person's success because we don't know what our light is. And you have your own light, but you spend so much time on social media that you haven't figured out who you are. So that's why I always tell people, sometimes take that break away from social media. Take that break away and figure out who you are, what you are, and what you want to present to the world. And, you know, I heard, uh, I think, I believe it was, you know, uh, and I have, you know, whatever you, if you agree with him, you know, you do, if you don't, you don't. But sometimes wisdom can come from anywhere, and I respect a lot of things mm-hmm. that's done. But you look at someone like, uh, 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 what did he say? Louis Farrakhan. He said this quote. He said, yeah. "You're focused on your calling, your path. You don't have time to hate on nobody else. That's Focus right. on your calling and your path." So, but let's jump into this because we have a whole lot of cool stuff to talk about, and I'm so ready. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but um, you and I, we we conversed through text, and you brought up something that. I want to talk about, and I definitely want to want you to provide your, your insight about. And we have a lot of these novel concepts and these novel things when it relates to entrepreneurship and economics, and they're really powerful things that can change the world, literally. And upon my research, I see that there are many things out there uh, as far as companies, nonprofits, and individuals that are already involved in this. So, for example, impact investment. Impact investment. And when I look at impact investing, one of the narratives that uh, a lot of people have spun, and sometimes rightfully so, is a view of capitalism in this particular box of being caustic, exploitive, uh, uh, perennially consummate. It's always consume, 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 and, and, and detrimental. And what I find refreshing about impact investing is that it's taking the narrative of uh, capitalism and it's starting to nudge it into a more benign manner. And what I like when I start to see, you have people that instead of you know creating products that are made with plastics, you have people creating like a toothpaste pills, so there's no need for plastic. You have people that are creating like biodegradable eating utensils. Um, you have people that are using impact investing for various social justice issues. And so what I wanna ask to you, is when you hear the term uh, impact investing and in your research, you knowledge about it, um, why is this so important? 
And what are some some ways that uh, impact investing can be used, not just in a manner for profit and being lucrative, you know, to one's company, but to also abet in various issues that affect us socially and possibly even planet-wise when you relate when you refer to things like climate change as well. You know, the reason why tacit uh, growth strategies, the reason why we pivoted and started uh, to communicate outwardly that we are an impact investment firm is because if you look at the work that we've done uh, over these past three years, especially, especially as it relates to San Antonio, Texas, especially as it relates currently in Detroit, Michigan, um, the work that we do is textbook impact investment. We're talking about dollars that are attached to real results, that are attached to uh, maximizing outputs, like making sure that folks have uh, potable drinking water um, that's at an affordable cost instead of it being the way that it's been, uh, where you, cur- you cut off the water uh, when people are not able to make certain util- other utility payments. Um, and things like if you look at the African American Museum here in San Antonio, I served as a, a president and the chair for that organization when we first started. We just got off the ground. And what I was able to do with them um, is exactly what is impact investment. You bring in funds, those funds, even if it's a grant, right? Grants, uh, and even if it's a private donation, it's a gift that, you know, somebody philanthropist comes to you and says, hey, here's a hundred grand, go ahead and spend it on whatever you need. Guess what? There's still terms and conditions. And so what we were able to do uh, with SACAM was make sure that the African American Museum was make sure that those dollars, the terms and conditions, were things that we uh, defined as a, as a community rather than just a, uh, a nonprofit that's anchored in a community, right? We made those decisions collectively, collaboratively as to how we would spend those money. So when we look at supply chain management, we look at how we procure different services from the community, all those decisions were made as a community mm. and they were made on a competitive and inclusive basis. So we made sure that we had a certain number of professional services that were procured from our community. We had a certain number of uh, retail restaurant um, uh, 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 procurements as well. So we weren't just, you know, hitting up for Juneteenth, for example. We weren't just spending money with black restaurants. We we're spending black money with restaurants, retailers, uh, CPAs, project managers. Um, uh, marketing firms, all sorts of different organizations. And so when when you look at the approaches to impact investment and you look at, you know, in particular, that environmental social governance lens, um, there's a lot of shortcomings, of course, on the corporate side of the house at this point, because impact investment in and of itself as a theory, as a philosophy, really, is very new. It's yeah. still, like you said, the benignness of it is what makes uh, ESG, that one approach to impact investment, that's what makes it uh, a very controversial con- uh, conversation uh, because a lot of these uh, large corporations are not necessarily diverse enough to be able to understand how to incorporate um, benefactors opinion the same way that you would a beneficiary's opinion. They don't understand, they don't know how to do that. They don't have the diversity on their boards they don't have the diversity in their staff. 
So you have to procure those types of services. And that is another reason why for us, we wanted to make that pivot to be able to provide that type of support to those corporations, to those government uh, entities as well. Because if you look, for example, with the American Rescue Plan Act, and you look at a lot of the funds that are uh, coming into municipalities uh, this month and next month, specifically to recoup lost uh, lost revenues due to COVID, um, a lot of those, well, excuse me, I should say not a lot, all of those dollars are uh, actually pegged to a particular framework. And the framework is evidence-based interventions. So it's not about just spending the money uh, frivolously and saying, hey, yeah, we got 80 million, um, you know, to help recoup what we lost uh, during the pandemic. We spent the 80 million. It's not enough. Department of Treasury, uh, President Biden, his entire cabinet, um, they're all looking for evidence-based intervention. They want to see up front uh, during the project and then, of course, at the end, they want to see that those funds help make a difference uh, for racial equality purposes, uh, for uh, environmental quality and environmental justice purposes, and other types of environmental social governance uh, aspects of spending those dollars. So the the topic in and of itself is controversial because the work that is required to truly say that this is impact investment is very difficult because if you look at the IRS, it's just like when you look at traders. You know, I don't consider myself to be a day trader even though I sometimes will place, you know, two to three trades in a day over a certain amount of time. I don't consider myself, however, to be a, a day trader or even a part-time trader, right? So when you're looking at investment in general, especially as it relates to impact investment, the IRS has, um, you know, uh, really only recognized wealth managers as impact investors, right? So, uh, so for me too, okay. with passive, I wanted us to be able to to pivot also to get into that impact investment lane because that's exactly the work that we've done, but we haven't had the privilege of being recognized for that because our community doesn't value that type of service. But then on top of that, because of who we are, we are women, we are black, to your point earlier. And you know, when you when you come into an impact investment space, it is going to be a white male space. Mm. Not even a white woman space. I can count on one hand, the number of white uh, women impact investors that have actually been um, uh, certified as such with the Internal Revenue Service of our country. So you bring up, you, within everything you said, which was uh, extremely enlightening, you bring up two, two things that, you know, I kind of want you maybe to elucidate on a little bit more, or maybe issues. So one, you're having the issues of corporatism. So a corporation is not looking for benign ways to allocate funds or to invest that's going to uplift uh, social issues or environmental change. Not by far, most aren't, right? So that's one issue. Second issue is the issue that we fought and, and, and continue to fight is this ossified way that we view the leadership of women. And those are like two struggles. So my question is going to be with this. Uh, so even get into that space, what has to happen at that corporate le corporate level? Because to me, it seems like the corporate a lot of these corporations there has to be some sort of paradigm shift with them in order to 
uh, allow or even be uh, ready to see like the full potential of impact investing beyond just the theory. So, I mean, how is that even... I'm sorry, go ahead. This is the funny thing. I didn't mean to cut you off. It, it, this is the funny thing about it, right? The corporations, you look at Xerox, you look at Starbucks, you look at Walmart, they're ready for that. They're mm. all good to go. The issue is the financial services sector. The banks mm. are behemoths. They are basically, when we talk about shadow government, you already know, you and I have had this conversation for years. Your shadow government is bankers. <laughs> it's Wall Street. It still is banks and hedge fund managers. Those That's the real money in this country is consolidated, consolidated at the banking level. I don't care if you want to call them the top 1%. I don't care what you want to call them. The reality is that the banks, those wealth managers, that's where all of the money, therefore the power, therefore the decisions are there. So when you're looking at impact investment and trying to make sure that it's real, it's accountable, it's intentional, you have to start with them because they're really the ones who are going to determine how to uh, how do you measure the inve- the impact of the investment? They're the ones who are coming up with the metrics, right? You're looking at them. They're going to go ahead and they're going to contract out, you know, uh, measurements with uh, Ernst and Young and Deloitte and Accenture and, and Pew Trust, and they're going to turn back around and say, okay, well, for every dollar that you spend on this particular uh, issue, you know, you got a return of that. Okay, they're the ones who really can give you the true appraisal and the true value um, in terms of return on investment. They're the ones the ones that can give you the truly circumspect uh, configuration of that. Without yeah. them, you can't get it because you got to look at it. You know, even with the housing situation, we have a housing crisis. We've had a housing crisis for a very long time, yeah. but we especially have it now uh, due to the pandemic. And with this housing crisis. You look at a lot of impact investment strategy that's coming into this sector uh, big time now. But the way that they're measuring their impact is not necessarily by how many families they're getting housed, but for how long they can house people and how many affordable housing units they have. Okay. Right? And then, and, and, and they're not even necessarily looking at it from a census tract perspective. You know, they're not trying to say, okay, well, here's our you know, most vulnerable, um, uh, most delinquent, you know, these people have historically uh, not been able to pay rent on time for whatever reason, they can't hold employment, whatever it is, family's too large, uh, too much relocation. They're not looking at it from that perspective because they're not collecting data. They're not collecting that data. Those data sets aren't talking to each other. (laughs) It's very convenient, right? It's the same thing in healthcare. You know, there's certain things you really, they say you can't make a difference unless you can measure it. But if you're not collecting the data, if there's not one central source or central hub that's collecting this data so that you can actually figure out what these people's experiences are from start to finish, then again, what are we talking about? Yeah, yeah. So it's like you said, it's that benignness of this totally different way of looking at capitalism where we're basically, the, the whole crux of it is to say, you should be an impact investor. Why? Because at the end of the day, you want to you want to spend money and get money back, but you want to spend money and do good with that money that you spent. So yeah. this is your way to, to do that. But the other part of that is recognizing that if you don't do good with your money from going going forward, people are going to rob you. You're going to yeah. have a real issue of the proletariat very soon, right? Especially if we don't have universal basic income, if we don't have certain fail safes 
safeguards in place, then chaos shall ensue. Especially Very with more automation coming up in, in the future. Like that's gonna be a heavy thing. And also, I mean, and then the, the other thing that I would uh, advise, you know, these bankers to look at, and it's funny that you mentioned the banks. Um, I'm gonna be real careful how I talk about those guys. <laughs> so I'm gonna say, they have had their hands on a lot, and I'm gonna just leave it at that. But what about the existential ramifications? Like I said earlier, you know, the UN and various other scientists, we're looking at an 11 to 12 year window before climate change becomes irreversible. So as you pointed out, you have the consequences of people trying to rob, take from you. You know, you may have the uprising of the proletariat or the petty proletariat um, as well. You have all of these different consequences. And then on the existential level, what's the ramifications of this way of doing business 50, 60, 80, 100 years from now? Um, what type of environment will our grandchildren and children live in? So these are all valid things. Really quick before we jump to the next subject, if anybody's uh, watching this and they're extremely new to the concept, uh, is there any writings or anything in literature that you direct them to if they want to learn more about impact investing? Um, the literature, not so much, but I, the crux of it is based a lot on um, Malthusian principles. If they want to really kind of get to know anything about impact investment, you, you know, you want to look really at your leading economist. Okay. You know, just take a look at your leading economist, your Peter Druckers of the world, and um, that'll give a, a good good insight, good background piece there. But when you look at a lot of, um, especially on the crypto end of the house, a lot of this is, 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 is coming out of a fear, a Malthusian fear, um, or principle, I should say, because I don't think that that's what Malthus uh, intended when he published his papers. But when you're looking at these pandemics, these plagues, um, famine, etc., uh, all this biological warfare, all this, um, all these different types of, of, you know, stratifications of warfare. When you look at this, um, ultimately, we're talking about population control. And the whole crux of impact investment is if I can raise the tide or if I can raise the standard, the quality of living for uh, people um, who have historically or have historically been underrepresented or underserved, and um, they've historically been that way because it makes us a lot of money, right? It's, it's made us a lot of money because we've been able to own the means of their production. When you're going into this new industrial revolution, you, the production, the way that you're making money off of production is not the way that you did it during the agricultural revolution, right? So now you're going into a productized economy that's knowledge-based. So in order to make more money, I have to have more people participate in this economy because I need more sources of knowledge. Yeah. Um, so now you're seeing that the, you have this push to really kind of look differently of how we do business, how we value different aspects of human capital. So now there's this huge drive on human capital, right? There's no capital that matters more than human capital, which we believe, which is why we call ourselves passive growth strategies. But now you've got the attention of bankers and other types of big money, right? And so now the bankers are seeing that the, the business is really a knowledge. 
and less on the technical aspect because you've got the foundation laid. You've got the technological foundation. You've got blockchain. You know, you've got the World Wide Web. You've got a lot of the foundation has been laid from here. You're just looking at different iterations to come, but not too much that, you know, sort of totally changes like the dot-com era, how it totally changed, you know, the way that we see the world, how we participate in the world, right? So I think that now that they've accepted that this is where we're at, we're moving. So, so again, looking at books and, and sources, the things you want to be looking at are stuff that's coming out from economists, Jeremy Rifkin, is another great person uh, to read from. Um, like you said, looking at the United Nations, they publish a whole lot about the Sustainable Development Goals, the SDGs, um, and there's all sorts of in great international perspectives around uh, how we can accomplish a lot of those goals and their targets uh, and really look towards accomplishing those indicators. Given that we're in a pandemic, and we don't see an end to this because we keep getting different variants. And then we also have people who are perceiving any type of protection or any type of, you know, uh, safety uh, protocol as an assault to their civil liberties and civil rights. So, so, you know, thank you. So yes, in terms of literature, getting your research done, I would always refer people, of course, first year economists, uh, then your other people um, like Thomas Kuhn and go oh, down yeah, even there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we've talked about because we need to get the foundation. Yeah, yeah, we definitely have Malthus. Yeah, Malthus. You know the fun, the funny thing is so like you know when you think about uh, Thomas Malthus and Malthusian principles, you always think about economy. But uh, one of the debates I've had, and I might touch on it in, in a future episode, is I always like to critique and analyze the conceptual nature of civilization and a lot of times people that are pro-agricultural revolution so they make this line of demarcation that you know life before the agricultural revolution was short and brutish and this is coming directly from Malthus himself uh and it's not the most accurate take but you know nonetheless it's it's it's, it's another dialogue for a different time so listen, uh, people that's watching this, I'm about to be a complete idiot right now. What are NFTs and blockchain, um, and why was Hove and Dane beefing over that? So let's talk about that. <laughs> so what, explain to the layman, such as myself in this particular subject, uh, what is an NFT? Because I've seen this a lot, and then I've seen this with you know uh, Jay-Z, or I think it was, it may have been Rock Nation, that sued, well, no, it was Jay-Z, I think, that sued Dame Dash because he wanted to sell his, uh, uh, I guess, like his ownership in reasonable doubt as an NFT. So before we even get into that, exactly what is an NFT? So that's a, it's a non-fungible token. And from what I understand about non-fungible tokens is that it's, it's, um, it's unique ownership. So you get sole sort of ownership of whatever that particular product is. So that is your thing for, I guess, life. Very interesting, okay. right? And it's a, it's digitally native. So, you, you know, there's only one copy. From what I understand, you know, you, you, you whoever owns it, that's it. It can't go back out unless that owner puts it back on to be resold, but that is it. Those, there's no other variation or derivation it's that person's token and that's it 
Wow. It's uh, yeah, it's something that and the reason I'm gonna be honest with you, the reason I even came across that, like I told you through the text message, is what happened between Dame Dash and Jay-Z. Cause Dame, and you know, for all of the slack, you know, for all of the, the pushback that people talk about Dame Dash, I just want to mention this. Uh one, Dame Dash is a Taurus, shout out to him. Taurus best zodiac sign. Number two is Capricorn. Um but, uh, <laughs> but, but, you know, the, the fact that Dame, you know, you're in a space that's predominantly black and you're talking about selling something as an NFT, he is literally the first person, I think, in entertainment period that was like, yo, I want to sell my piece of reasonable doubt as an NFT. That's what I want to do. And then I started to see things where different pieces of artwork can be uh, sold as an NFT. Um, do you think there's, uh, you know, we, we were talking about, um, you know, impact investing, and then we're talking about NFTs. You know, is there a space, it seems like uh, there's a space for the creatives here, you know, because a lot of yeah. artists are talking about, I want to sell this piece or this album or this vinyl as an NFT. Yeah. Uh, should more creatives and artists start to study this a little bit more in your opinion i i think that they already uh have been on top of that i think who was it, it was nas um yeah, who's gotten an nft game a long time ago jim jones uh what is that the nfl players um gronk gronk yeah. has an nft um uh dak has an nft so there's a there's there the creatives are in the space like you said most of the time you're going to see art you know, a lot of graphics. Um, but that, you know what's interesting? I was going to talk, ask you about this too, actually. The whole situation with Dame and, and Jay is very interesting to me because Dame was saying that he was not trying to sell, the NFT would not have been reasonable doubt itself. He was saying he was trying to sell his stake. His stake in He's yeah. got an ownership stake because he was co-founder of Rockefeller Nation. And he was saying, that he was looking to sell his stake and yeah then he said that people have been lying on him so him looking at selling his stake of the company as an nft to me sounds very fishy because i don't know how he would you wouldn't be able to do that you don't own the entire company you own a portion of it so how would you be able to sell it as an nft if you don't own the whole thing right yes, you know, so that, was, that, that doesn't was make complex sense part because i yeah. know that helm jay and biggs own that so then yeah you know i don't know what biggs i don't know what his opinion was on it or how he felt but jay was like no you know that's no. not going to happen and you know and, and, and the thing is with dame he's such a um He's such a unique mind. He's a he's yeah. a very rare individual. He has no trepidations about speaking his mind. And, you know, a lot of people don't like Damon. I didn't understand that move wholeheartedly of exactly what he how he was going to try to really get that off. But this is what I will say to Dame's credit, and then we'll move on. Uh he's one of the only hip hop moguls that can credit two billionaires to being under his tutelage. So I know people love Jay-Z. Yeah, I think he was hip-hop's first billionaire. And then Kanye West became the second. Shout out to Rihanna, although she's more R&B. Yeah. She's still part of the hip-hop culture. Um, she's, I think she's, she's worth like $3.5 or something like that. 
Um, mm-hmm. So shout out to them. But the fact that with all of the, the, the criticisms people have of Dane, you had two billionaires that came out of working with you, under you, and being around you. So it must be some valuable information that brother was giving out to those people that were around him. And, um, you know, shout out to Dame Dash for that. Uh, but uh, moving on, talking about uh, UN, the UN Sustainability Plan. And there was like three, because it's a lot, and, you know, we don't have all of the time in the world. So it was three I want to focus in on. Um, the first one that I saw was attacking poverty. Mm-hmm. No poverty. Now, when I read that, I said, and, and they had like an outline on their website about the uh, the mechanisms and how they're going to attack this. But then I also think about certain institutions that exist who've had interactions with places like Haiti, who've had interactions with Jamaica. And you know, Jamaica's trying to sue Britain for reparations now. And there are institutions and entities that have a parasitic relationship with oppressed peoples globally, and they are able to acquire wealth as long as things stay the way that they are. And right. when I read that, and I said, huh, this this sounds good, and it's really, I mean, I, or anybody that's listening to this, I encourage you to go and look at it. I mean, it blew me away, but I think about the uphill battle that you have against some of the powers that be at the moment where it benefits them for things to stay like they are. And so, um, first of all, you know, I want to ask you, what is your opinion um, on the UN sustainability plan? And then we can kind of like go through like each one of these, just overall in general. Yeah, I mean, I think that the 17 goals were, it was a necessary conversation for than those nations that are members of the United Nations. It was a necessary conversation for them to have because they had just wrapped up, I think it was Millennium Goals that concluded in 20, what was that, 2017 or so? When those concluded, the response wasn't, okay, oh, we got our Millennium Goals done. Let's go ahead and move on to, you know, being a happy planet. No, we still have work to do. You know what I mean? So I, 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 definitely appreciate the fact that we have this this sustainability plan that's out there because if you look at all of the countries and you look at our states california for example when president biden announced the other day uh that by 2030 you know he's looking at half of all vehicles uh being electric that's a huge that's a huge goal you know and and that is in response to our commitment uh to these to the sustainability uh, development goals that we publish as members, uh, as a member of the United Nations. So I think it's a very important thing for all of us in terms of level setting. Now, to your point though, and this is one of the greatest criticisms of the goals is how do you define these items? So when you're talking about poverty, what's your definition of that um, on a global scale? Because poverty, in this particular area of the world is not going to look like poverty in that particular area of the world, right? So now we're looking at quality of living, we're looking at uh, upward mobility or mobility period, we're looking at uh, access to different types of food, grain, uh, potable water. So we have so many different aspects um, when we're thinking about definitively how we define poverty and how do you eradicate this thing, you have to start with definitions. 
And and I'm gonna tell you right now, they did a great job of attempting to define uh, oh, yeah. each of these particular yeah. goals. And the issue though is gonna be, uh, this is a global problem, right? It's a globally local problem where if the local areas do not find ways to have these very meaningful conversations where they can at least begin to identify definitions so that they can come up with you know solutions to these problems you know if it's it's a global problem that's where we have to start and like you said it's it's extremely malleable because the way poverty is going to look in beirut is going to be different from los angeles versus uh Aiti, you know versus london but the problem is there's a ubiquitous problem of more people without than that have and in order for us to really move forward because you know, when you talk to a lot of social scientists, or even like the, uh, are you familiar with Rick uh, Kurzweil's work? He's like the really out yeah. there, you know, singularity guy that believes that we're gonna merge with AI at a certain point. But before you can get to the AI conversation, you have to solve this conundrum of poverty. And part of that conundrum is if I'm a corporation that has a parasitic relationship, let's say with a country like Sierra Leone, where millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars in mineral wealth are extrapolated, but there's no infrastructure. There's no way, they're not, they're still, even in 2021, a lot of these countries still aren't, do not have 100% autonomy. And when they try to shoot for it, sometimes nefarious things happen. And so, Hello. the UN can be- like I love what they put on the website, but we cannot act like it's not a problem when leaders who want to consolidate their their the wealth of their country, the mineral wealth of their country, misfortune befalls them, or they have puppet leaders that allow all of these outside sources to come in and just remove, remove, remove. So uh, that's another part of that has to be solved. But let me ask you this: um, when we're talking about the concept of of, of poverty, right? And, and getting rid of that globally. Uh, what do you think, in your opinion, what do you think uh, is, is, is one of the biggest obstacles that's stopping us from getting to that point? Because like you said, um, poverty is gonna differ. Like I was listening to a podcast, the Joe Rogan Experience yesterday, and he had a lady who had um, escaped North Korea um, I think her name is Yomni Park, and she escaped, and she's an activist. And she was talking about the abysmal levels of poverty there and the fact that it differs so much. But although it differs in different countries, I feel like there, there, there have to be like two or three things that if we can kind of move past or optic, obstacles, excuse me, if we can get over, those would be like the first steps in achieving some sort of plateau to where we actually can find pragmatic resolutions in ending global poverty. And what would you say is probably one of the biggest obstacles that we face? It's gonna have to always be for me corruption. And it's a personal thing for me because I see it on a local level all the time where you know we talk about gatekeepers, you know, and we think about these individuals who are in the position to ensure that resources are allocated uh, properly or uh, more fairly or you know more equitably as they say right 
but they refuse to do that because they are in the position of power and influence uh, to do with those uh, resources how they please. So when you're looking at corruption, corruption for me, like you said, um, is going to be the the biggest thing. I don't I don't think it has anything to do with the uh, what everybody wants you to think, which is that we don't have enough money and we don't have enough resources and we don't have enough this. I, I never never assume that that's the case, right? I always assume that we have enough to take care of everyone. Mm-hmm. We just refuse to do so. Mm-hmm. And because the reality is that everybody doesn't eat the same. Everybody doesn't need the same grain. Everybody doesn't need the same uh, minerals. Everybody doesn't need the same beans. Everybody, you know, we eat differently. So, you know, you can't make these like lofty, oh, well, we can't afford to make sure that everybody has portable uh, water and we can't afford to make sure that everybody has you know the food and the shelter that they need who told you that yeah you know so for me it's always going to boil down to the corruption because i see i see it on a local level where it's like you know the right thing to do is to ensure that these people get access to this but you refuse to do the right thing because you don't want somebody to to compete with you like you said about me you know people always that intimidation factor that oh you know this is a person who thinks that they, 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 they're this and they're that and that. Let's keep them suppressed. Let's keep them away from this circle. There's yeah. always that corruption. It's corruption because you're talking about elected officials who are doing that, who are uh, elected to do the right thing by us and to make sure the taxpayer dollars are going to taxpayers, you know, equitably, not just their little handful of, of people who vote for them and then their friends. But unfortunately, that's that's human nature. Yeah. So corruption is always going to be the thing that prevents us from just really just doing the right thing. Yeah. Um, this wasn't really, I wasn't even going to talk about this, but you mentioned something just now. I just want to get your opinion on it. What do you think about the concept of political tribalism? Because you mentioned something very unique just now. When we elect these officials, I remember one of the things that that was going on during the campaign where Joe Biden was running against Donald Trump. And I have my own critiques of Joe Biden. Like I don't, you know, think, and and I have a whole lot of critiques about Trump. So I have critiques for both. But one of the things that Trump kept saying is that he always wanted to juxtapose red states with blue states. And I like what Biden said when he said, when you elect me, I'm the president for all states, not just red or blue. And I want to ask you, is there a way where, like, when you look at the current political system, you know, either you're on the left or you're the right. Some people are uh, claiming they're part of the Green Party, like Cynthia McKinney, or some people are claiming they're like a libertarian, or some people, you know, say, hey, I'm a moderate. And so we kind of have this this, uh, fragmented political system that seems to kind of be together, although flimsy, but we're making it work somehow. Uh, how do we address that political tribalism? Because we've seen it under the Bush administration, um, and we've seen it under the Trump administration, where if there's a disaster or an issue that's going on in red states, they more readily allocate funds. They're more ready to hear the issues or, or, or give their ear. and my problem is that if that's the case, if that's how we are politically, then we really aren't going to make the progress that we can make 
It's not that we can't make it, but it's the progress that we can make. And I notice whenever you see a debate, even if it's like at the, uh, the gubernatorial level, because right now uh, we're here in Virginia, we're having our uh, gubernatorial race in for November. And so you have the Republican candidate, and I apologize that I can't remember his name at the moment, but he's a fervent Trump supporter. Although he's kind of trying to distance himself a little bit now, but he is. And you know, uh, Terry McCullough is running again for governor as well. But even with them, it's so dogmatic in I'm on the left and I'm just going to push left-leaning issues or I'm on the right. I'm just going to put right, push right-leaning issues. And one, I want to get your overall perspective on political tribalism. And then do you think there's any plausible way that we can solve this or this just is the nature of the beast in your opinion? I agree. I agree with you. It's, it's, it is the nature of the beast. It's human. It's honestly human nature. You, the political tribalism um it there's a lot of money in that and not just money it's like just resource allocation in general right like it's just like when i think about how powerful uh the islamic and christian networks are so very powerful you're talking about which but because of your religion you know having a, a safe place to stay having uh three meals a day uh, getting in front of a, a dream position, you know, a dream, you have your own business and they're just giving you contracts just because you are affiliated with their uh, ideology or their belief system. Mm. It's powerful. It's powerful. And so the political tribalism is, is, is going to naturally reflect how people organize themselves anyway. People are going to uh, find like minds and those like-minded people are going to be people who believe the way they do to see the world that they do the way that they do and 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 who kind of stick to those those limits those boundaries because that's what's comfortable you know and and i think that you don't start to see a deviation from that until you meet a new generation that doesn't live with the same uh fear that we that we live with, we I think we can't our generation and, and the ones that preceded us, uh, as far as my memory uh, shall take me, they had they were born into subjectivity, and when you're subject to this and subject to that, and I gave you your name and I gave you your family and I gave you you know, when you're subject to all these different things, it's very difficult to go outside of that square that you've already been drawn into. Yeah, you know, and there are things that are uh, bestowed upon you at consequence to you belonging to this square, and things that are not bestowed uh, to, upon you because you were not born into that particular square. You know, so right. because we've organized ourselves, our societies, our cultures that way, we're not truly global citizens yet. I think that there is a possibility that one day we could get to that point because you have a generation, you have generations coming after us who really don't care yeah. about anything. They want to get their likes up on Instagram. So there you go. That's what, that's what, <laughs> that's what matters. Them, right? They're totally yeah. dumb to so much. And you know, I can I can I can imagine them just being like, you know what? I don't care about this 23 and me stuff. I don't care about you know I can imagine them saying, you know, I'm a free person and free for me means I'm not subject to anything. I don't have a name that I'm subject to. I don't have a gender 
I'm subject to. Yeah. Uh, I don't have a citizenship that I'm subject to. I can see us getting to that point. Yeah, you know? yeah. and, and um, you know, I was reading uh, Dr. Chris Ryan's work and he, he put out a book, uh, Sex at Dawn. And, and the title is Sex at Dawn, but it's really about the advent of the agricultural revolution, how hierarchies formed and all of this stuff, right? And uh, one of the theories about political tribalism or any sort of tribalism is that it goes back to our hunter-gatherer days where if you were excommunicated from the group, it could mean you could you would die. And so um, to take it on a, on a lesser level, politically, you know, we form into these tribes, but even with friend groups, you know, you'll have people that don't really agree on a lot, but then they'll, they'll all kind of commit to disagreement because nobody wants to be excommunicated. It's some like visceral fear that we have of being ostracized, of being, you know, the pariah or, or cast it aside. Um, so I want to move on. Let's get into crypto. So I know you love this subject. I know you love it. And for me, I was kind of depressed because I saw how Dogecoin crashed. Like it was that, I think Dogecoin had hit like 70 cents, right? And it went all the way down to like 17 cents. And like me, I'm like, because I told you how much Dogecoin I own. And I'm like, yo. And I'm like, I was talking to, I was talking to my homeboy. I was like, man, look, next year, next year when Dogecoin hit like five bucks, listen, I, like, I have my vacay plan and all of that. And so I was just like, man, Dogecoin just went into the gutter. gutter. But uh, on a serious note, from my very uh, novice understanding and research, I'm seeing a lot of people get behind Ethereum. Uh, a lot of people are talking about Ethereum is that crypto that you want to start to invest in. Um, I see Bitcoin is kind of falling. And so let me ask you this, um, in your opinion, those people that are like, hey, I want to get into crypto and they're torn and they're like, I- I'm, I'm seeing this about Ethereum, but then Bitcoin is still a powerhouse. You know, where do those people go that uh, really want to start to invest in crypto? I would say that you got to remember Bitcoin is the future. All these digital currencies in general are going to be the future. And the reason why, it's very simple. When people hear crypto, I want them to just think very simply about it. What it's about is with the advent of internet, right, with the uh, opportunity, when DARPA came up with, uh, you know, this huge information gathering and sharing database, metabase, right? Um, uh, metadata base. When they put this together, no one envisioned that the public would have access to this, right? This was not intended for public use. This was intended for the military. When they put it together, it was about sharing information and not sharing payments, not making payments online, right? What we're looking at now is a revolution where we're making payments, we're receiving money, we're sending money online. You're not going to have to use PayPal. You're not going to have to use Square. You're not going to have, right? That's what we're looking at is digital native currency where you don't have to have a bank to be able to make payments for things or to receive funds for things. So it's the future. It is the future because, and it's very simple. When you look at the number of people who are unbanked, they always tell you throughout the world, the, the percentage is going to be less than 50 percent uh, of people that are banked. They have a bank, right? Most people don't have a bank. You and I both know many people who don't have bank accounts, right? Till this day in 2021, there's a lot of people who do not have bank accounts. People that are close to us that don't have bank accounts. 
Um, and those are intentional decisions that they have made, right? And I don't criticize them for that because I understand you have, this is your privacy rights, this is your liberty, I get it. What I love about this digital currency that is uh, being birthed or that, I'm, that we're witnessing right now is that you're gonna, we're gonna get to a point where you can take your phone and you can pay for whatever it is that you want with, your, with just who you are, your identity on your phone. You won't have to log into your bank and you won't have to do all this other stuff. You just, it's a digital currency, right? Uh, so it's going to be bartering on a different level. And I think it's really going to le level the playing field for a lot of people throughout the world uh, to be able to, to realize their, their goals without having to have to deal with too many middle middlemen or middle, middle, uh, middle businesses. Now, here's the other part of it. Now, it's like you said with, with Ethereum. So when you're thinking about Ethereum, Ethereum is really uh, the safe play for a lot of people because that's that's your blockchain technology. That's the strong holding for that. Now, Bitcoin has been popping. We just, I just sold some Bitcoin yesterday. Um, not all of it, some of it, to uh, buy some stuff that I needed for the office. And, you know, and I bought back in. I sold a few, a fraction of my Bitcoin and then I bought back a, a you know a smaller fraction back because I, as, as it continues to climb, I want to make sure that I'm I'm still you know holding a significant amount of that. Mm -hmm. Now you look at the same thing with Doge. You don't want to let that one go. If it, if you got in at seventy cents and it dropped back down to seventeen cents, guess what? You needed to buy more when it went back down to seventeen because it's on its way back up. What is and that, uh, when Don Musk, what's that chart? The pump and dump. That's but it, you're, okay, but you're, not that's it. you're not pumping and dumping, okay. right? Because you're not pumping it because you're not buying a bunch of shares and you're not buying the dip necessarily. You're just buying it when it, you know, when it takes a break, it's going to have a drawback. You're buying it there and you're not dumping it. You're holding it. That's why we call it diamond hands. You're okay. holding it and then you're going to take some profits, but you're not going to, you're not going to sell a hundred percent out of your position. You're only going to sell maybe 25% out of your position and then buy back maybe 10 or 15% of that, right? Mm -hmm. So when you talk to Elon Musk, Elon Musk said that in his crypto wallet, he has Dogecoin, he has Ethereum, and he has Bitcoin. And he said he's got a bunch of other, excuse my French, chip coins, or what we like to call alternative coins. He's got, he said he has a whole bunch of other little small ones, but his major top three holdings in his crypto wallet are Ethereum, Bitcoin, and Doge. So you are in great company, my friend. <laughs> awesome, yeah. I uh, yeah, I actually, it's funny. Like I sold some of my Doge yesterday. I still have a whole lot though, but I said, you know, I'm gonna buy some more because I'm ho like I'm never gonna sell all of it. I'm holding this because I want to. You know, you and you. Okay, so we were at VCU at the same time. We're not gonna say what year because yeah. we don't want to seem like old people. So we're gonna keep what year it was to ourselves, but what I'm about to say is going to expose it. I know you remember when people were like, hey, you can mine for Bitcoin. This is some years ago, and it was relatively cheap. And now I don't like to look at anything about Bitcoin because I had the opportunity way back then, like many of us, it was, I was, was now nah, whatever. And I didn't do it. And I'm like, if I if, if I had just brought, if I just got like seven Bitcoins and I held that all the way up until now, 
You know what I'm just saying? <laughs> That's why I'm like, well, where would you have bought it? What'd you say? Where would you have bought it? Yeah. I mean, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. It's, it, 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 but I'm like, so now that I have this doge, I'm going to hold on to this because I'm looking at the future like 10 to 15 years from now. And as I buy more doge, and I'm going to start to buy Ethereum as well. Um, yeah. How do you see this? So you're saying that crypto is the future. You know, it's just the, uh, yeah. the centralized currency that we have here, right? What happens to the dollar? If we're in a world as crypto continues to rise, and let's say we're in 2050, we're at 2050, right? And crypto's just killing it. What's the future of the dollar in your opinion? Well, the Department of Treasury announced, I want to say it was yesterday, I was listening to Chairman Powell uh, talk about um, crypto and uh, him and, and Secretary Yellen's opinions have obviously uh, evolved uh, quite a bit in the past year after they've seen so much uh, crypto activity. I think that when we look at the future as it relates to gold and the dollar especially, the dollar is going to be okay because the Department of Treasury right now is coming up with a crypto for the dollar. So if the situation becomes in the future, right, because China's been talking about uh, the same thing where they're going to have their the Chinese yuan is going to be a, a, a crypto, it's going to be a digital currency. Um, if, if that's the direction that we're going into, which it seems like it, it could well be in the very near future, like you said, by 2050, if that's where we're going, then I, I think that we're going to see a return to a very strong um, mineral base. So gold and silver and copper, those commodities, I think, are going to be PhD commodities. I think just quite naturally, because most of the world um, is still not going to necessarily be involved in the buying and selling opportunities that come with crypto. Yeah. And that knowledge is still going to be very cryptographers are going to be um, pretty much the experts of the experts and there's not I mean unless we have this resurgence of more people who want to study cryptology cryptography you know outside of that it's going to be a very small niche you know small number of people who actually know how to um, ensure that their wallet the ensure the integrity of their wallets you yeah. know because at any point some scam can take place. Cybersecurity is always going to be an issue. Uh, a scam can take place. You lose everything that you're holding. That's why I asked you when you were talking about, you know, hypothetically have been given opportunity to buy Bitcoin in the beginning. And I'm like, well, well you know, we would have bought it. Yeah. So while, exactly. We might not have been able to retain it because a lot of the people who got in early, uh, you know, they lost uh, access to that wallet or they lost the keys or something happened. And, um, so that that's going to be our other issue is actually protecting our assets, yeah, our digital assets. Yeah. You, uh, so in your your personal use, because I know I have uh, Robinhood and I have Binance, so yeah, I have those. Um, but I know people talk a whole lot about Coinbase. Um, is are you yes. familiar with, like are you familiar with Coinbase? You know, what's your opinion on Coinbase? Coinbase is, is awesome. Uh, they're the behemoth. They're just, uh, Binance is same. It's just Coinbase is bigger. And um, Coinbase is, I think, bigger because if you were doing any sports betting before, uh, when we were 
you know, taking our profits out. When we were cashing out, Coinbase was actually the one in the back. Well, affiliates of companies of Coinbase were the ones who were actually ensuring that we got access to Bitcoin or however we decided to get paid out. Uh, Coinbase was the one who's actually taking care of those transactions. It, it would be between Coinbase or Square. Okay. Um, so that's why they're the behemoth when it comes to crypto, uh, crypto code and warm wallets. And uh, but Binance is fantastic. I have a, a eToro and Binance accounts, and um, I have holdings. My cryptos um, hold the held at uh, PayPal, um, Cash App, and um, Robinhood. Okay. But Robinhood is where I do most of my uh, trading, my actual stock trading. Um, I want to ask you because you know, uh, you know, No Truth Bar is about providing information, hoping people can learn. But I also, you know, love to talk about figures in our community. So just kind of stand on the topic of, of crypto. A lot of times when I see stuff about crypto, specifically Bitcoin, uh, what's the guy's name? Pump. You know, he, he comes up a lot. Uh, you have such a vast knowledge on crypto and whatnot. Are there any emerging like experts and leaders that happen to be black men or women in the crypto world that maybe we can learn from or keep an eye out for? Um, black men and women uh, in the crypto space, uh, I would have to say that the the guys over at Earn Your Leisure are fantastic. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yes, Earn Your Leisure is a great resource for us. Um, I think Angel Rich, she is a fantastic resource. I don't see her talking a lot about crypto normally, but I'm sure she does. Mm -hmm. uh, so Angel Rich is another one. And um, uh Stacey Tisdale talks sometimes about crypto as well. So Stacey Tisdale is fantastic as a financial uh, expert. And we have a few others, but there's um, not many that are prominent in the space. Yeah, definitely. Uh, well, yeah. uh, shifting gears, um, I want to, when I, I, um, this is going to be a little, a little sad, uh, not even a little, but a lot sad, the part that we're about to speak about now. Um, recently, uh, we lost a huge, huge, huge intellectual giant uh, to African people across all across the world, um, Dr. Renoko Rashidi. And if you're not familiar with his work, he was an, uh, an African anthropologist, African-American uh, anthropologist, a historian. I believe he lectured in over 67 countries. And he put out uh, one of his, the, the book he's most known for is a book by the name of uh, African Presence in Early Asia. And he actually has another book. And I want to ask my guest, if it's okay, I want to show, would like to show uh, uh, Brother Renoko's book in the camera for the people. That's okay with you. Absolutely. Sure. Okay. Hold on one moment. Okay. And he actually, uh, this book right here is uh, that the Black Star African Presence in Early Europe. That was the last book that he wrote. And I actually, uh, um, actually, excuse me, it's another book that I got from him when he came here to Richmond. But I mentioned him because um, he had a profound impact on me. You know, uh, Luana and I, we, you know, we would talk about some of his work and. Uh, I definitely rest in peace, rest, rest in power. Um, if, if there's any take that you have on on Dr. Renoko, 
Uh, definitely love to hear it. Um, and then I have like a follow-up question to that as well. Yeah, I um, I was, uh, Brother Hoyt actually was the one who told me first about um, Dr. Rashidi uh, passing. And I just, I, uh, I, I didn't know how to take it because um, I, I, there was, there were many opportunities. Like, you know, we both got to see him when he came to our university, Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond in Virginia. But I wanted to, you know, take his, I wanted to go on one of his trips. He used to do all sorts of uh, trips, you know, overseas to uh, have people, you know, go and really understand the African presence throughout the diaspora, throughout the world. And um, I wanted to be able to one day have the honor and the privilege of taking one of those, uh, taking taking up one of his uh, offers for, for one of those trips. And I just, to know that he passed so so early in his life was yeah. uh, very devastating and very disappointing because um, there's, so, there's so many people who do, who do not understand his contribution to um, everything, uh, sociology, philosophy, history, of course, uh, I would even venture to say economics, um, astrology, everything. I mean, yeah. cosmology, he just, he just really was a scholar, um, a supreme superior scholar. And so, uh, his loss is, it is a, like we always say we lost a, we lost an entire encyclopedia we lost an mm. entire uh, library we lost uh, we lost Carthage you know like we lost an entire encyclopedia with his love and um, I was but I was happy when uh, I found out that he was in Egypt when he passed something about that made me feel very comfortable yeah, it, it was like he he died doing what he, I know it's cliche, but he transitioned doing what he loved. Uh, I think they say he had touched down in Egypt because he was flying to Egypt from Ghana, I believe. Uh -huh. And he had a heart attack on the plane. And I think, you know, he touched down in Egypt and, you know, they rushed him to the hospital and, and I don't think they were able to save him. And uh, they weren't able to save him, excuse me. And so... I look at that like, man, you know, he spent, uh, and even even still, you know, I think Dr. Rashidi was like in his late 50s and maybe early 60s, and that's still relatively young, you know, to to to, to pass. So uh, when I heard about it, it was just like I was blown away. And you know, you mentioned the, the quote where it says, "When an, an old man, or I I would like to say, man, when an old man or an old woman dies, any of our elders, we lose the library." We lose that. And um, I was thinking about this whole conversation that we're having. And we're talking a lot about a lot of these novel concepts. We're talking about crypto. We're talking about impact investing. And so what I'm looking at, and this is something I talked to uh, Sister Aimee uh, about. I know you remember her. This was some years yeah. ago. And you know, I saw Dr. Utsi. He said something about how there's this, this uh, perception that an AFAM degree is useless, you know, or, or some humanities degree is useless, and that couldn't be further from the truth. But since we're talking about progress, 
And you know, we've had uh, other famous black anthropologists and historians, you know, such as Dr. Uh, Whitney, uh, Whitney Battle, you know, her, excuse me, Whitney Battle Baptiste, um, people like Anthony Broder as well. But yeah. what do you think going forward? You know, we have a lot of great historical work, but is there a way possibly to incorporate these new technologies, um, these new platforms going forward when we're talking about discussing and researching African history, uh, how do we advance the research? How do we uh, uh, incorporate all of these new tools at our disposal now, in your opinion, going forward, as, as, as it relates to research about you know, African-American history or African history as well? You know, what's sad about that is I don't believe that if you are an a person of African descent, right? I don't think that you can go online and find yourself or find anything real uh, about yourself really online. I just honestly, if you want to do the research, you have to have elders like what we had with, with Dr. Rashidi. I mean, like that that's where you have to get that information because, you know, they're their um, accounts and their uh, history and their knowledge and 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 their folklore, those things, if they're online, I, I wouldn't trust it because I just wouldn't trust that it, it hadn't been tampered with or that it hadn't been um, corrupted or 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 you know, a completely different agenda, like how we see a lot of these people who should not be quoting uh, Dr. King, and how we see a lot of these people who should not be quoting uh, Coretta Scott King either, yeah. uh, but they do it all the time. And when you're dead, when you're no longer here, and there's no one that remembers, people can do that. And when it's online, and there's no one there to help you interpret that, people can do that. Yeah, and, so, and, and I think people forget I remember, uh, I think I introduced you to Professor Adeyami. I had him on my podcast as well. And, uh, you know, and I look at the, the mentors, you know, people, uh, Dr. Jill Rao loved herself some Lawana Chambers. Like, whenever I, whenever I would go in her office, she was like, oh, Lawana, Lawana's just such a brilliant mind. And Lawana, and she was like, she loved you, like, so much. And, and, and you know, people, and even people that may have been, you know, maybe not uh, part of our, you know, phenotypic community, but just yeah. part of our intellectual community and our intellectual yeah. family, people like Dr. Herbert Hirsch, you know, who yeah. spoke highly of you as well. Uh, 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 what? Hold on, wait. Wait a minute. He passed? Yeah. We lost Dr. Hirsch, I want to say, um, <sighs> maybe last year or the year before. Oh my God, I didn't know. He was another one, another one, another one. Brilliant. Exceptional uh, in every way. Brilliant, brilliant mind. Um, Doctor, what's what's the gentleman's name? He from Philly. Uh, oh my goodness, I can see his face. Not Johnson. No, the salt and pepper beard. Um, oh. What is his name, Doctor? Uh, Greg? Dr. Carr? Uh, Maurice, Maurice uh, Jones, Dr. Maurice Jones. I think that was his name. Dr. Jones. Okay, yeah. Another, another brilliant mind. 
so I mentioned all of these people that we know personally for a reason. Yeah. This is why I'm mentioning this. Is I'm piggybacking off of your point. We had the, the privilege to have actual scholars that dedicated their lives to learning this information. And it's different. When you talk to people, or more specifically, intellectuals and academics that dedicated their life to studying history, uh, uh, linguistics, and anthropology, and it's not just something they Google, your appreciation for that information is a lot more. And, 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 And the danger now is that you have a lot of keyboard and Google scholars and intellectuals, and yeah, they can Google something, but it's not coming with that that wisdom, that 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 love, that sincerity that our, our, our elders in transition or the ones who still are here had when they would disseminate that information to us. And I like you brought up that fact that, you know, one of the other ways that we have racism is that if I was to tell somebody I'm gonna go and study economics or political science or what have you, they would take it with a serious ear. But if I tell someone I'm going to go study African-American studies, they just think it's something I can watch a YouTube video about or Google, and I know what I'm talking about. So even in the discipline of African-American studies and Africana studies, it's that perspective of, oh, well, you know, it doesn't involve that much intellectual rigor when it couldn't be further mm-hmm. from the truth. And, mm-hmm. we, and, and what I would advise to anybody that's going to watch this, please... If you can, sit at the feet of a person that really knows what they're talking about. Don't just rely on Google. Just don't rely on YouTube. And they're out there. They're out there in San Antonio. They're out there in Richmond, Virginia. They're out there in Washington, D.C. You have places where you can go to real academics, uh, real intellectuals, and really learn this information. So um, I just wanted to to dedicate that piece to Dr. Renoko Rashidi and uh, Rest in Power. And thank you uh, for all of the information that you provided. And I know you're continuing to drop jewels uh, in that next dimension, in that next realm. So thank you once again, Brother Renoko. Uh, love your teachings. It was an honor that we were able to have you on this planet during this time. And uh, we'll never forget the work that you put out there. And so uh, moving on briefly, I just want to talk about misinformation. We're talking about the internet and it being Google Scholar. So, uh, when it comes to the V word, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say it. <laughs> and those that don't know what I mean by the V word, I'm talking about a, a a thing that you get to protect yourself against certain viruses. So that's what we're talking about with the V word. So when you go back, you look at the fact that prior to uh, I think prior to 1952, when it was Jonas Jonas Salts who came up with the first polio vaccine. And then it was later on, I think it was Albert Sabin, who came up with the oral polio vaccine in 1962, which kind of became a lot more popular. You had hundreds of thousands of people around the globe dying of polio. When you go to the like the late 1800s, people were being taken out from things like tuberculosis. And even my grandmother would talk about how in the country, when they found out somebody had TB, they would burn the whole house down. There was a time in this country where smallpox, chickenpox, these things would wipe out people like uh, a family may have five kids and three of them die because of chicken pox. And so when you look at the V word and the origin of it, you understand that 
it prevented a lot of deaths and it allowed us to grow, you know, as far as a population uh, is concerned. And then even on an African tip, you know, the Akan, they had a, a method of, uh, of the V word that they use against YAWS and, and that's spelled Y-A-W-S. And people that don't know, essentially what it is, it was a tropical virus that would make its way into your body through cuts. And what would happen is, is that it would develop lesions on your body and then possibly really deep ulcers. And the Akan had a way of, 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 of F, I mean, plus, pardon me, vaccinate, aiding against that. I'm trying to say the word. And so people don't understand that. And even in New York, uh, you remember a few years back when they had this outbreak of measles and, and kids were yeah. dying and getting sick. That came from the anti-vaxxers because they were like, hey, I, I saw this thing on YouTube or Google, so I'm not going to do this for my child. So I don't necessarily want to get into the V word per se. I just want to put that out there. But if you want to reference the V word, please feel free. But my question to you is, considering that we're in a pandemic, how dangerous is the plethora of misinformation out there about the pandemic itself and when and it as it relates to the V word and protecting ourselves? You know, it feels like we're in a, um, it, it feels like we're in a video game where at the end of the day, the goal is to see who's going to survive. That's what it feels like. Um, that's how that's how trivial we've, we've trivialized this entire situation that we're in. We've trivialized it to a point where it's you can you can it, I feel like it's a gamification scheme, right? Like straight up, because there's no real end in sight that we can even uh, envision when you've got people who have gotten to the point where they are refusing, outright refusing to be you know the b word um based on you know oh well i served in the military and while i was in the military i, I was i was forced to take you know x number of v's and i told myself when i got out of the military that i would never subject myself to any other v again okay again we'll never talk bad or shame anyone who feels that way of course you know that is a feeling that i can't relate to i did not serve you know it's on you my problem is we can't have the civil liberty without having the consequence and i think that when we lose sight of the reality that you live in a large society where in order to be able to to sustain that way of living and to be able to then reap the benefits of living in that such, such a large society there are certain things that we have to do to be able to to you know live together yeah. um i think that when you're looking at what's happened recently it makes me upset on a very basic level because i'm like if i go and talk to one of these people like you said these anti-v's if i go talk to them and ask them where they got their meal where did their meal come from i want to know you tell me specifically if you went to kfc if you got, I should even be saying companies. If you went to a place, a restaurant, <laughs> and got some food from that restaurant, tell me specifically where they got your chicken, where they got your collards, where they got your mac, you know, your noodles, where they got the cheese. I want to know where they got the dairy to make the cheese. I want to know everything. Where they get it from? Yeah. 
And if you if you're if if, if it's frivolous to you and you don't really care, I don't want to hear anything you got to say about a V. Same thing with your drinks. Where's your water coming from? Where is your soda coming from? Where are your juices coming from? Again, if you can't answer the question, don't want to hear anything about a V from you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah because you know. to me, I mean, what you're afraid of is is, is um, what you could have potentially already exposed yourself to time and time and time again every day involuntarily. And, and how many how many foods and materials that do we come in contact with daily that have carcinogens in them? How many of them? And there's not this uh, trepidation there. Uh, you have people you have people that drink and eat things with high fructose corn syrup in it. People that go out every weekend and drink. I mean, ridiculously, and we've been shown that alcohol levels cause problems with the liver, potentially cancer of the liver, uh, uh, alcohol-related dementia. All of these things have been proven. And so we drown ourselves in poison on a daily basis. You know, we have an obesity epidemic in this country. We just have a myriad of things that we deal with, but we don't have an aversion towards that. And here's, here's my issue. So there is, a fine line of demarcation between me truly wanting to know what's in a V and me truly wanting to understand how the V was developed versus me spreading QAnon propaganda that has no basis in reality. And the problem is this, I heard Neil deGrasse Tyson say this, which I love, one of my favorite scholars ever in the whole universe. Um, hopefully I get to meet, you met, did you meet Dr. Tyson before? You know, yeah. Uh-huh. See, now, well, now I'm jealous. See, now that's what I am jealous of. But <laughs> <laughs> he said this, and it was so true. He said in today's society, you don't have to be truthful. You just have to be compelling. People don't care about the truth. It just has to sound salacious and compelling and provocative. And if, it's, if it fits those criteria, then, hey, we're going to run with it. You know, and that, but, but see, the difference with this pandemic is that misinformation is causing people to die. And that's yeah. the difference. And uh, I don't know, I'm going to repeat myself, but for those of you who don't know, I actually caught COVID uh, myself. I didn't catch the Delta variant, but I caught one of the earlier variants and I caught it myself. And I gave it to a loved one, and this person almost died twice. And it was one of the worst experiences I've ever gone through. I would never in my life want COVID again. And I would advise everybody to really make a sound decision. Don't base it on conspiracy stuff you've seen on YouTube. And don't base it on what sounds salacious and compelling. You know, really look at the truth of what's going on. I think so far in the United States, over 600,000 people have died from COVID. Is that correct? Yeah, it's closer to a million. Close to a million, so you have over a million people um, that, have, that have passed away. And, and let me ask you this, you know, and it's going to Dr. Tyson's quote. Why do you think that is now that something doesn't even really need to be the truth? It just has to be compelling and provocative for people to believe it. Why, why do you think that's 
especially amongst younger people specifically. Why do you think that's such an issue and a problem currently? We, you know, it's funny because we've always been that way. Mm. I think of Salem witch trials. I mean, yeah. Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you think of all yeah. these. Caesar. I mean, you think of all these, you know, stories and and um, and uh, all the history that we've told, and that's been the case. The storytellers are the ones who either get you killed. The good storytellers either get you killed or they get you uh, saved. They keep you alive. It's it's, it's either or, right? Yeah. And I think now it's um, I think now it's an issue because I think what happened with the printing press that that you know the advent of the printing press and then having this sort of taste of democracy, right? Where you kind of had like um, any and everybody could write and any and everybody could sort of publish, right? And have their words be read and their thoughts be read and their stories be told, no matter who they were. You know, as long as they had access to, you know, a pen paper, they could make copies and boom, it's out. I think we got we got squalled and we realized, you know, how easy it is um, to tell a story that you said, like you said, that not, not, might not necessarily be truthful, but it's compelling and it, and it has a call to action. It moves people to do something specifically that we want them to do for us, which means that it confers power and influence to us that we did not have before. So it's one of those things that we've taken for granted and that we've also exploited, and now it's coming back to haunt us, right? Uh, like, I think that's really where we're at. Yeah, it's, um, it's the power of propaganda. And to your point, mm -hmm. this is really not new. You are spot on. You know. I mean, think about mm -hmm. even if you want to go to, to the to the Eastern Bloc or you or you looking at like the, the Soviet Union, look at the propaganda that Joseph Stalin would put out there about himself in movies and film and newspaper. Uh, you know, you look at even somebody like an Adolf Hitler and what he was able to do through being compelling and rallying people up and propaganda. And it's something about the human psyche. It's like the uh it's that modicum of belief which allows us to do really great things and then it also allows us to really do heinous things and then i think it also ties into that hunter gatherer thing of i don't want to be excommunicated from the group and so sometimes we can even participate in things that we know isn't right and, per and perpetuate information that we know isn't right but our peers are doing it so we do it because we want to assimilate because it's better to go along with the group than be outcasted. So you are so right on that that it's 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 something we've always dealt with in this human drama, this this condition that we've dealt with for thousands of years. And how many people have died? How many hmm. women have been killed because of propaganda? You know, you talk about you talk about Salem, but they you go back to societies like during the time of the Ottoman Empire and, and earlier than that where if a woman was alleged to have acted upon a sexual proclivity, that's death. And if you get a lot of people to gather around and say that, hey, you know, that's how it happens, you know? And so um, I want to advise people to wrap it up. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was just saying, until this day, with the, as it relates to women, women still, uh, yeah. I mean, those acid attacks, uh, death, if you are uh, found to be an adulterer, I mean, those things are still real now. Yeah, we we have a problem with seeing women as human beings. Patri patriarchy 
hate, and I know people hate that term. And and I, I I'm always I'm hesitant of how I use the term patriarchy because you and I know it's like societies are really complex. So it's more yeah. than just labeling something that way. I'll say under the system that we've existed under from for the past few centuries and, and before, but you know, I think Columbus and dare I say Christianity, the Western European variant of Christianity really exacerbated this uh this disdain and, and, and contempt that we have on a on a subtle level for women and people don't even acknowledge it. And and you know the fact like I said earlier, when you can't handle a woman being in a position of leadership, you can't handle a woman having a, 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 a intellect or acumen, that's all part of that. And and I definitely agree. And so be wary of the misinformation. So we're about to get out of here, out of, out of hell, the powerful Luana Chambers lost for far too long. Um, so really quick, I just want to get your opinion on this and then we're going to wrap it up and close it out. What was your opinion on the Dipset versus Locks battle? <laughs> what did you think of that? I loved it. You know, I love Fat Joe because Fat Joe did such a great job of just like giving both of them their flowers. You know, everybody deserves their flowers because that was a big night. For, that was a big night for all of us, for the culture. They said for hip hop. But I would just say that it was a big night for the culture because, when you know, when we were kids growing up, you know, people dressed like them. People yeah. dressed like them. Yeah. Especially that Harlem fly. You know, like, like Pat Joe said, Harlem is different. They cut different, <laughs> you know. And we had guys that dressed like that, that put on pink, you know, because they wanted to be able to, you know, show that they could wear any color that they wanted to, that they weren't restricted uh, to just boy colors, right? They could wear all colors because they were kings, you know, they were, um, you know, able to express themselves in ways that before we didn't think were acceptable. So the culture, our culture has really like when we look at what we see today with mumble rapping and when we look at um uh you know sexuality and how it's playing out in public spaces this is what started all that i know we don't want to you know admit it and look at it for what it is but this is the origin everything we see today this is where it started you know it, it that's how powerful this music um these uh these men that's how powerful their influence has been on an entire generation generations of people yeah yeah very much so yeah and, and the other thing to me that stuck out on a, on a lesser level it was like wow jada kiss's styles are in their mid-40s but i never Woo! thought i would that, I don't know, it's just like your people you grew up with are getting older. And yep. and same thing with Jim Jones and Cam, like oh, these guys are like in their mid-40s and they did a heck of a performance. What I will say though, I'm I'm gonna speak the truth. Dipset got washed. Uh and I, <laughs> I like Dipset, I appreciate those guys. But clip when when Jadakiss dropped, when they dropped the uh the I shot your beat and Jadakiss started the little freestyle, I was like these dudes are in a different league. It was the most entertaining <laughs> verses I've seen. Like when uh when Styles and Kiss were rapping and Joel was trying to walk through them and they, they took his bandana off. Like I just it threw <laughs> Kiss on the ground. It just was like the theatrics was just like crazy. When he was like 
They can't even rap the words. You could have listened to that on Apple Music. You could have sat in the car and listened to that It was just like Jada Kiss was the MVP. But <clears throat> to wrap this up, I want to thank you for coming on. Uh, as always, I deeply appreciate it. And uh, if you have anything you want to like mention or projects coming up, you know, go ahead and mention that and also let everybody know how they can follow you again. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Every time that you invite me to come on to talk, I always say yes, because I just love our conversations. You know, I love you as my brother in general. And um, your podcast is the best podcast. It is. I love this podcast. Choose Bart is the best podcast. I always listen to all your episodes. Thank you, sister. Fantastic. But I, I mean, the only thing I would plug is if, you know, if folks want to get a copy, get a signed copy of Master Grant Writing, a Project Manager's Guide, um, I sign them here in the office and then I ship them to wherever you are in the world. So just let me know um, if you want a signed copy, we'll take care of you. And uh, please make sure that you like and follow um, me on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So on Twitter, I am at HyattLJ2. And on Facebook, I'm at Bafana uh, Chambers Lawson. And then on um, Instagram, it's under the company name, which is at Growth is Tacit. So if you type in uh, T A C I T, it'll be the only thing that pops up, I promise you. And then on LinkedIn, I'm at the same Bafana Chambers Lawson. So if you like me personally on all those pages, you'll get, you'll stay in the know on everything for the businesses and, and everything else. Uh, oh, also, really quick, let them know you have a Twitter account as well. Is it the same handle on Twitter too? It's high. It's LJ two. Okay, okay. So mm-hmm. that's how they'll find you on Twitter. Um, once again, this has been episode seventy one of No Truth Bard. I want to thank my powerful and esteemed guest, Lawana Chambers Lawson, for coming on today. It was definitely an honor and privilege, as always, to build. Uh, with my sister and make sure you're following me on Instagram at Hoy H-O-Y-T underscore Waku K-W-A-K-U underscore Timmons that's T-I-M-M-O-N-S and also make sure you follow my other page on Instagram which I'm going to start to do a lot more with in the future which is underscore No Truths Barred podcast uh, make sure you subscribe to the YouTube channel which is No Truths Barred on YouTube and also this so this when this uh, episode airs this week coming up, I'm going to be bringing back Truth Sessions and Saturday Night Confessionals. So I had to take a little break from that, but those will be coming back as well. And once again, I want to thank you guys for tuning in. Thank you for the support. Much love uh, and much peace to you as well. Take care until next time. Peace. This has been episode 71 of No Truths Barred. And I want to thank you guys for tuning in. Also, make sure you subscribe to the YouTube channel, which is the No Truths Barred podcast. Once again, thank you for tuning in and see you next time. Take care and peace.